0: Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Tom Harmon and I bring you greetings from Reformation Presbyterian Church in uh, Fresh Meadows where I serve as deacon alongside of Pastor John Fishico. It's always a joy to be back at First United, the church in which I the church uh, that will always feel like a second home in many ways. And so many fond memories here. So I'm very thankful to be back. And and privileged to participate in this Good Friday service. The second word of our Lord from the cross is also recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 23, that Jesus, after being tried and convicted of blasphemy, is taken to the place of execution, a place called the skull, and is there crucified. Two other men, two other criminals, violent thieves or robbers are also there crucified. And come beside Jesus, one on his right and the other on his left. Luke tells us that Jesus is mocked by the Roman soldiers and the present religious leaders. He was able to save others. They say, let the Christ of God, who chose him one, now save himself. Even one of the criminals beside Jesus falls into the mocking. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. We read that his fellow criminal, on the other side of Jesus, rebukes him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He tells him, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving reward of our deeds. But this man, this Jesus, he has done nothing wrong. Done rebuking his fellow criminal, he himself then turns to our Lord and asks, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He responds to this penitent criminal, this so-called repentant thief is recorded there in verse 43. And it constitutes the second word uttered by our Lord, dying on the cross. And Jesus declares to him there, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What an astounding answer. Perhaps the sweetest words of comfort ever spoken. Before we consider the significance of Jesus' words and implications, let us first take some time to consider the nature of this criminal's request. (coughs) What, what, What could have led to his plea to be remembered? Most likely this man had heard about Jesus, the reports of his mighty miracles, the healings, and his powerful teaching. Perhaps he was even present among the crowds who had heard Jesus preach. No doubt he knew that Jesus was convicted of blasphemy being executed for that crime. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the account of the crucifixion, it is recorded there, that even at the outset, this speech, too, was mocking Jesus, along with the rest. So, we ask, what changed? What moved this man to make his repentant appeal? Was it the manner in which our Lord endured his sufferings, enduring with such patience and grace, showing no bitterness towards his tormentors and deliers? Was it Jesus called to the Father to forgive his execution instead of cursing? Him? Surely this would have made him deep impression on our feet. Surely, his observing these things would have been a precursor to what I would I would call his conversion, what I would call his confessional faith. One may ask, how much can we really glean about the content of the criminal state? How much are these really revealed here in 23. 23. I would suggest that there is More here than when they first, at first glance, realize. When we speak of repentance and faith in Christ, we often speak of how we are bound up in an acknowledgement of one's sinful condition, the utter inability to save oneself, turning from one's sins to the only one who is able to save in Christ. That our feet possess such a repentant heart is evidenced in part by his review to his fellow robber. In his rebuke it is revealed that he knows himself to be a sinner. He knows that he and his fellow Robert are suffering the due penalty of his And he knows that Jesus is innocent and is suffering unjustly. He confesses that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He turns to the only one who's able to save and asks the Lord to remember him, alone with contrite sin when he enters into his In this rest, the nature of the thief's faith is revealed further. In it, we learn that he apparently believes that Jesus, the, uh, I'm sorry, in, in it, we learn that the, the death will not be the end for Jesus. Death will not be able to contain him. This innocent one dying at the hands of sinful men will inevitably conquer the grain. He further believes that Jesus will enter a kingdom. We may conclude then that our belief identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the, the chosen one, the Redeemer, come to save his people from their sins. Words reveal the ability to see and even anticipate the kingdom of God coming. An ability that is only walked in the heart by the Spirit, according to Jesus' words to the Pharisees. We further conclude that our faith has been born in man, has been born and, born and able to embrace the Lord of faith. This man has become a Christian. Indeed, at the last hour, Indeed, it's been deathbed conversion. But he has become a true believer in Christ, nonetheless. Coming to him as all true believers come to him in repentance. And faith. Certainly we do not assume that our team knew all of the aspects and implications of Jesus' life and ministry. He may not have had all the theology straight in his mind, yet he knew enough. He knew enough of his own condition. He knew enough of who Jesus was, and what he was able to do. So he asks the true thing to, to remember. He's a wonderfully gracious word. Only I will you that you will be in the entire world. What a the of all the works and part of the man. A helpless sinner, dead in sin, nailed to a cross, all the time of sin and rebellion behind him, unable to do anything to save himself. And yet one word, one heaven, open. Oh, the wondrous love of God, glorious grace, so rich, so free, free for all who will come, the cost paid in full at the cross. This word from our Lord in the midst of his sufferings, this word of hope, is for all who come to Jesus in true faith. All who receive the rest on him alone for salvation, like the repentant deacon, can claim this word as pertaining to them. Of this glorious statement today, will be with me, start. I first briefly examine the two common ideas pertaining to the afterlife that I believe Jesus' words be touch on. The first is the Roman Catholic doctrine of, of purgatory. In this doctrine, Christ's death pays the eternal penalty of our sin, but the Temporal penalty must be dealt with after death to the believer in purgatory. And according to this scheme, the believer does not enter immediately into heaven, but first enters into Certainly a place of torment and pain, where the believer needs to be purged and purified further until he or she is fully sanctified, completely holy. And once this stage is final, justification is achieved, then and only then is the believer we now fit to enter into an eternity with God in heaven or paradise. Depending on the individual, this process could be a second of time to centuries of time, depending on the level of holiness achieved in this life or the various sins that incurred during like lifetime. I would suggest that no believer would be a, have been a better candidate for this purging process than which men all repent and fear. He is the freshest of the converse, saved at the last hour. No time for good works. No time for rest and holiness. No time for even baptism. And yet Jesus tells him today "You will be with me in paradise. Surely this verse. This powerful verse speaks against the notion of purgatory, and furthermore, no other place in Scripture would be used to this end. Secondly, the idea that the souls of believers are unconscious after death, only to be awakened death and death, death, but in terms of soul to sleep, also would seem to be refuted by our text. Luke 3 it clearly says that today, later that afternoon, the thief would be with him, the Lord. The expectation is that on, upon his continuing death, the soul of the thief would be in the immediate presence of Jesus, the Lord. There was, no way to, there was no period of unconsciousness. Here our Lord affirms what the Apostle Paul, the later one, to the believers at Corinth. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So our Lord's words speak against these two common ideas pertaining to the afterlife. So what does it teach in a more positive manner? Well, for one, it speaks of assurance. This word from our Lord to us, here today, is one the show that all who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, as did our repentant be. On the day of their death, we'll be ushered into glory, into the Roman presence of Christ. Jesus' word, today you will be with me in paradise. His prefaced with the word truly, verily, or most assuredly, depending on the English translation. But we must not miss it. Jesus is calling us a special function. This word of our Lord is very true. It is given with solemn promise. It is meant to bolster assurance in our hearts. This assurance is indeed not a special work of grace to receive God, reserved for the most sanctified, the most holy of believers. No, this assurance is for all those for whom Christ has died. It is not for the believer as Paul teaches everyone in the Church of Corinth, to believe and be sure that to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. The Apostle John, in the close of his first epistle, says, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you may be sure that you have eternal life. You may be confident." Yes, the Lord's words speak assurance. And along with that, it, it teaches us that we should not be fearful of death. The fear of death is read of what might lie on the other side of the grave, has been removed for believers in Christ. For believers, the moment of death is entrance into paradise, entrance into an eternity with him. Death longer is no longer a fearful thing. But in a sense, a joyous companion of a state of eternal blessedness, the details of which no eye has seen or observed on the side of the Now, of course, this is not to say death, hell, you know, is a good thing or something you should seek after prematurely. After all, it is the unnatural separation of soul and body. Brought into this world on account of man's sinfulness. We are called to live lives of hearty service unto our Lord, and trust Him to know when it is good and best to pull us away from the service. Death is still an end, but it surely is a defeated enemy for the believer. The sting has been removed, as Paul tells us in verse 15. The case is reversed. We also can take great consolation. Knowing that the part of the loved ones who have died in Christ are now in Jesus' in a place of perfect blessedness, <coughs> apart from any pain or suffering, that now represents a glorious reunion with those who have gone on before. may these words prompt you to think soberly concerning what lies beyond the grave. Even as Christ on the cross bore the sin's people, absorbing the full measure of God's wrath towards sin for them, the truth is that wrath still remains on those who are outside Christ. Just as heaven is all who belong to him, God's fearful wrath, God's fearful judgment is coming on all who reject him, on all who will not come to him who pretenses. There is a real hell, contrary to popular opinion. We're all convinced of their own sin and misery, their helplessness to save themselves. and everlasting forgiveness in Him. There is no salvation in any other name. Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." There is no business saved that lasts out. We do not know when our hour will come. Look to Christ in faith and be assured. But when that time does come, you also will be with him in paradise.